Hello, welcome, welcome back to the podcast. I hope everyone is doing well. Um, I'm a few days late um, from when I wanted to release this. I'm trying to release these on the first day of every month. Uh, the last couple weeks, a lot of things sort of were coming together at the last minute. <clears throat> and so I've I had to uh, prioritize a few things. <laughs> And uh, so since this podcast is, well, I think of it as uh, mainly like a fun, enjoyable thing that people will hopefully like as well. I'm not primarily doing it as like an entertainment or a business kind of thing. I mean, I've, I think, you know, I, it could become those two things, but right now I essentially wanted to just try this out and have a place to share thoughts and things that I'm doing. And, um, so it's not like towards the top of the priority list. I guess maybe it's somewhere in the middle along with, um, well, along with like most of the online things I do, like with, uh, YouTube, Instagram, um, my website stuff. Although I'm thinking about just, uh, starting to think of some of these things in different ways. Like I, I've gotten pretty good now at this point with using social media as strictly a business thing and not a social thing. And which is, it's kind of funny how, uh, I don't know. I mean, everybody sort of thinks about, well, I guess if we just take Facebook, for example, I think a lot of there, there's a lot of different viewpoints on how people, use and view Facebook, right? So like, for instance, you've got the grandparents who want to go on and like see photos of their grandchildren, which is awesome, which is actually one of those things where it's like early on Facebook was worried. They were like, well, when people get to a certain age, they'll just stop using this platform. And I think, I don't know if it was an inter interview with, um, well, I forget who it was. Zuckerberg maybe, but he was like, yeah. And then we realized, you know, grandparents would get on or people that never had accounts would start accounts so that they could see photos of their grandchildren that maybe they didn't live close enough with to see on a regular basis and things like that. And then that's one of the things that really helped it blow up. But yeah, I basically tried to uh, maintain a rule with myself where I don't scroll. I think I've probably talked about this on another, on one of the other podcast episodes. I kind of forget now, but, uh, because it's basically that thing where if like, if you were a kid in the nineties pre-internet, which I was, uh, well, and the eighties, you know, but I didn't really watch TV in the eighties. I don't think cause I, well, I was born in 84. So I, you know, my heavy TV phase was 90s and then early 2000s, I guess. Even though in the 2000s, I don't even really think I watched much. But like in the 90s, if you wanted to watch TV, it's like you didn't know what was coming on. If you had cable, they had like TV guys. We never had that. So it's like when the when it was like 5.59, you just started flipping channels to see what would come on. And then if something you liked came on, then you would watch it. Or if something just mediocre came on, you would watch it anyway because you just wanted to watch TV. That's what ends up happening when you're just scrolling through Facebook. You don't know what's coming up, right? 
It's like it has control. You have relinquished control to the scroll. <laughs> then it's like, what if you think about that? It's kind of like walking down the street and just knocking on random people's doors and like asking if you can come into their house and you don't know if it's going to be a good interaction or not. Well, maybe that's not the best analogy because that could maybe be a kind of a cool experiment. Maybe not asking to actually come in their home, but maybe just like trying to meet people or just, you know, introduce yourself to your neighbors at least. But on Facebook, it's like you don't know if the next 10 posts you see are going to impact your mood negatively or what sort of emotion they're going to give you. And you're just sort of like drawing straws in terms of what the outcome's going to be. I just don't. Well, and so, you know, obviously, like, you can follow things that you know you'll mostly like. That's the nice thing about it, right? You can basically curate more or less what your scroll will be. And especially on Instagram, I think it's better because you're not getting bombarded with people just, like, complaining or their opinions, which is more of, like, what you see on Facebook. But Instagram... Like, say I just followed like a hundred of my favorite musicians. I know I'm going to really like that feed for the most part. The only thing with that is that it's like an overabundance of things that I'm interested in. And I would be worried that I would just get sucked in for a longer period of time than I wanted to. And then I would essentially just waste time on these little like clips or audio snippets or photos or, you know, album releases, all that stuff, which is all good. I want to know what's going on, but you know, I would much rather take an hour every day and actually just sit and listen to an album, like with my eyes closed, focusing on the music, than sit and scroll for an hour and just see like, or just hear like little 10 second clips of a bunch of different things. And I just don't really get the depth, you know? I think that's one of the big things we lose is we lose the depth. And so I guess one thing I like to do is just check in with some of my favorite musicians occasionally and like go to their websites, see what they've got going on and then go and like actually listen to full albums. For example, you know, if I'm thinking about music or same thing with like authors or whoever, you know, I guess typically the, Instagram or Facebook feed is not the best way to consume like someone's work, I think. I mean, I think we all pretty much understand that, but it doesn't stop most people from, you know, scrolling like two to three hours a day sometimes. I had a middle school student who told me he spent four hours every day on Instagram. (laughs) When he told me that, I was just like, what on earth? How is that even possible? And he said he had, well, he had, I think, at least two accounts. And he, one of the accounts was just a meme account. And he had a lot of, he said, friends on there. And I was like, really? I was like, well, are these people like you're in school with? He's like, no, I've never met them. <laughs> he would just message people that he met on Instagram, I guess, about memes or just share funny things like that. Um which was fascinating to me. I can't imagine really having just those, having relationships where it's just based on that type of interaction. Um, yeah. <laughs> so 
Um, okay, where 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 was I going with this? Well, um, wow, yeah, I don't remember. Um, well, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> anyway, uh, here we are. Oh yeah, right. I was saying how I was like a few days late on putting this out, right? Because it wasn't top priority. And uh, one thing that I've, I've been thinking about lately is, well, you know, this is a sort of like an overarching challenge for, I guess, musicians, really anyone in any sort of like freelance uh, uh, world. But this idea of, uh, you know, being your own boss. And cause like ultimately you decide what you're doing, how it's getting done, when it needs to be done. You're the boss and the employee. <laughs> so, uh, it can be challenging. It can be confusing. It can also be really, really great. It's like, you have to figure out how to make it work and what you are going to prioritize. And I think for me, one thing that I've noticed, like, especially maybe like from the end of January until, well, I guess sometime last month. So I put out, what did I do? Maybe six or eight YouTube videos on this, this new series I'm, I'm going to be doing. It's called Sean's practice room. It's, you know, I'm sharing things that I'm playing, uh, and then talking about a little bit, sort of explaining it trying to go into a little bit of depth, not like a full lesson or a course or anything, but more just like sharing what I'm doing. And I'm sort of thinking of it as a twofold thing. I, I think it could be inspiring to people that are also facing this daily grind of, you know, practicing, working on things, trying to get better, but also like a little bit educational, especially for saxophone players or people of any instrument, uh, trying to work on improvisation, but, um, you know, from, was it six or eight? Let me just check real quick. I'm just going to pull up my YouTube page just to, just to get an idea. Um, okay. Let's see here. If I go to Sean's practice room playlist, Okay, so one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, nine. Okay, so I did nine uh, videos so far in this new series. Um, and yeah, these are all on the YouTube channel. And what I was kind of thinking was I'm going to be doing two a week. So I'm going to put one out on Tuesday and then one on Friday. And basically... I just want to use this as, well, I guess it covers a lot of different areas. It's like sort of documenting what I'm working on. Like these are already things that I'm doing and now I'm just sharing it. So it's not really like I'm having to spend extra time working on things, but I was just kind of like, you know, man, if like Joe Lovano, Mark Turner, Chris Potter would share little snippets of what they're working on and then talk about it, I would, I would eat that up, you know? And so I think that there are a lot of people that are interested in this sort of thing. And especially again, people that are really like learning how to play or maybe they're 
into improvisation a little bit already, but really don't feel like they've like fully grasped it or just need a bit more guidance. Um, and so from these nine videos, um, so I posted on YouTube, Instagram, and then in the saxophonist group on Facebook, I think I've had, well, and you know, for, for each one underneath it, I have a link where you can download a, a practice kit that I give away. And if you go to that link, then you just put your email in and it like automatically sends you this practice kit. I've had, um, around 120 people sign up on the email list just in those few weeks where I released those, those nine videos. And that's the sort of thing where it's like, okay, just from this short little experimental period, this shows me that this there's like real value in this and just taking the time, um, you know, and it like, especially with YouTube, a lot of times what you see is like people just trying to like knock you over the head with, uh, how do I explain like glitz and just like, uh, anything that they feel like will keep you, keep your eyeballs on the screen. And for me, that's like a real turnoff. What I basically want it to be is just like me playing a little bit and then talking. And every time I play, it doesn't have to be the most flashy thing, which is another thing you see online is like, especially on Instagram, I'll notice that if I put out something where it's just like, I'm just playing faster, it just gets a lot more traction, a lot more, it's just a lot more popular. Not necessarily even if it's better or better playing or better music. It's just like, if it's just like real flashy, it typically will do better. But what I'm trying to do is just like be more honest about the even sometimes mundane things that I'm working on. So like one of the videos was I was just playing this really basic sort of like really slow arpeggio along with like a string backing track to as like an intonation exercise. And I think that video maybe got like a, a slightly lesser amount of views than some of the other videos. And I kind of expected that, but the thing about it is, man, this is actually like one of the most useful exercises for just simply getting better at playing the instrument and working on my sound a lot. So this is sort of what I'm getting at is like, this, these are the things that, you know, if, if people that, if there are people that want to get better, you know, this is what you want to do. You don't want to just go straight to like the flashy stuff and just like work on that. It's like, you really want to get into like the fundamental, just very grounded foundational work of sound and, you know, that's the funny, and that's the, one of the things that motivated me to make the uh, video where I said something, it was like how my my setup or how my set tenor saxophone setup or how I work on my sound or something like that. And because um, so many people, ever since I started Instagram and YouTube stuff, the by far number one question and comment I received in messages and comments is like, well, it's one of two things. Either somebody says like, your sound is great. Or they just say, what's your setup? 
you know, and like, that's, the, I talk about it in the video, and but it's just basically like, you can get my exact setup, but you will not, it won't, you won't sound like me. It's more, it's so much more about like developing your embouchure, developing your voicing, your airstream, getting a clear picture of the sound that you want in your head and then figuring out how to produce that. The equipment is like very, a very small percentage of that overall thing. Um, and that's the stuff that I want to really cover more of. I like, I'll, it's the typical thing of like a younger player wanting there to be like a quick fix. Like they can just take a pill and they're going to sound like whatever player, but it's, more useful if you realize like well if you're willing to commit to like the long the long game then you can actually get into like these exercises like you know there's a great um video on youtube of uh mark turner master class where he talks just a minute about how he works on overtones and he just demonstrates it just for a second it's like, that's the sort of stuff that's, that's just like pure gold in terms of that specific thing in terms of like developing your sound and, and improving that. And so I can, you know, I can make videos where it's like, learn these three blazing fast diminished licks and you'll sound like the most hip modern player, <laughs> which now I'm not trying to necessarily throw shade at anyone that's might be doing things like that but it's just kind of like again that's not the most important thing it's like yes it is good to be familiar with diminished language material those scales but again like you know if you just have like a thin edgy sound and you're just going you know you're just playing stuff like that it's you know, it might seem cool to you in the moment, but then, you know, down the road, you're going to be like, man, I wish I just had like a, a more depth of sound. And I wish I was able to really create my own stuff over chord changes. I, I, I feel like that's what, what typically happens. Um, and so, you know, I'm trying to get more to the heart of the matter with like these videos, make it more honest. And even if it's less like clickbaity, that sort of thing that's okay with me I, I mean again i'm going for definitely going for quality in the content and in the audience as opposed to quantity and so you know when i'm the this is i guess the reassuring thing about it from those nine videos getting that amount of people signed up and interested on the email list then it's like okay just from that short period of time and they're building on what what I already had from the email list when I did almost a hundred videos just on like um, specific jazz language like material those I was doing shorter like uh, I think maybe like two minute videos for like a pretty long time um, and so now it's like okay I was you know a little worried where I'm just like you know, just talking, it's, there's not like a lot of fast cuts. And that's what you see again on like a lot of the YouTube videos is like people trying to find ways to increase retention. Whereas I think 
you know, I think you can actually do fine if you are, again, just like being really honest and getting into like a little bit of depth and not just trying to like talk really fast and blah, blah, blah with like a lot of like graphics and fast cuts and all that. It's like, yeah, it does sort of like suck you in like those styles of videos. But, you know, when it comes to practicing, one of the best things that you can realize is that the ability to be patient is maybe one of the best traits that you can have in the practice room. Um, patience and then also consistency because I think a lot of people they'll like go real hard for like a couple weeks and then they might see like a little bit of progress but then they either get burnt out because they overdid it and they weren't ready for that workload and to actually make that a routine or they get um, sort of uh, what's the word I'm thinking of they get uh, well they get turned off by the fact that they're not they don't become Coltrane in two weeks <laughs> so you know it's like man if okay say you're somebody who's like practicing maybe like an hour a day right if you just say oh I heard this player practices for four hours a day I'm gonna start doing that I guarantee you it will not work. The reason for that is just because mentally, now this is most cases. I think in rare cases, people can pull this up, but like if you're going, if you try to go from an hour to, to four hours, all of a sudden, it's like your day-to-day -day framework is not designed to support that. And there's, I do think there's something in terms of like developing the attention muscle in your brain. It's like right now, if you have the capacity to do an hour of really focused, solid work, that's a, okay. Let's say that's sort of like bench pressing like 50 pounds, for example. If you try to just jump up to 200 pounds, it's like you might be able to push one rep, and that might be the equivalent of like practicing four hours a day for like a week maybe, but then it's the skin, it's not gonna hold up. You gotta like build up slowly. So what I would suggest is, you know, maybe just try like an hour and then add like a 15 minute, a separate 15 minute session or something like that. Then do that for like a month. Because again, what you want is in the, over the long term to, to get to the place where you're trying to get, not in like two weeks, you know? And it's, I know it's challenging too, cause say you're in school and like you have a recital, so you have a recital in like two months. It's unrealistic to think that you are going to just like, boom, just like double the level that you're at and just like become like a whole different player. What's, what would be better is to just like focus on your weaknesses and just up those by like a little bit and that will that will be noticeable. And then if you just continue to do that, that's the thing. So then say you're doing like an hour and 15 minutes for like a month, then 
at the end of that month, reassess and say, like, all right, how do I feel? Do I feel like still hungry for more? Do I feel like I'm being like a little bit overwhelmed? You got to sort of like gauge that and then say, okay, how can I find ways to bump this up? But also like focus my time to make it, um, to, to make the quality of the time better. Cause you know, of course that's what it's all about too. It's like, if you're just spending, if you say you're spending four hours in the practice room and like an hour of that is on Snapchat, <laughs> like you you just like be honest with yourself. Like it doesn't, you're not impressing me. You know, it's just so funny. I have, I've taught a lot over, I guess the past 10 years, lessons of people of all ages, all abilities. And people still think they can come into the lesson and say something like, uh, yeah, I practiced. I practiced a lot. <laughs> I practiced a lot this week. Okay. I'm like, all right, awesome. Uh, I'm in support of this. Let me hear this thing that I assigned to you. And they play it. And I can think in my head, okay, they practiced this twice at most this entire past week. Twice meaning like two 20-minute practice sessions. And 90% of the time, I can guess within like a very small number how like how long they practice something or if they did or if they didn't. Your, your ears just get so tuned into this stuff and students think that they don't realize the level of ears that their teacher has. <laughs> so they think they can lie. And you know, I, I'm straight up with everyone at this point. I'm just like, listen, this is how it is. Like you practice this once like yesterday, right? And then they look down they're like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what? Do you don't need to lie to me. Like you don't need to impress me. Impressing me does nothing for you, right? Like I, I can't help you other than like give you these assignments and guide you. That's how I'm helping you. Like you trying to impress me by saying you practiced a lot and then proving to me that you didn't the moment that you played, you know, <laughs> it's like that it does nothing for you. I'm not, hey, you don't even get a grade for this. <laughs> I did not uh, intend on uh, ranting on about this at all, but you know, this is one of like the major pitfalls of the private lesson lesson system that's like that everybody engages in, and we engage in it. I think for two main reasons: one teachers like it because it's pretty good steady income like if you have a student coming every week and they pay $30 for a 30 minute lesson you know it's like um, you don't need a ton of students to have a decent weekly income uh, from that and on the other side of it I think parents really feel like they're doing a great job by they're doing their duty, right? They're giving their child or whatever the gift of music. And this is really enriching them, which it is on a lot of levels. And being in like a public school music program is 
better than not if you have any interest in music. Although obviously there are a lot of problems with public school music programs, but that's a story for another day. (laughs) But the point is like with these lessons, it's almost not worth the time to be taking weekly lessons, but not put in whatever would be considered to be a decent amount of work along with that because you can't you can't move the needle 30 in 30 minutes a week i can make i can design the the most optimal lesson schedule it's like like right when they come in something let's just say i haven't even really thought about this but like this is a lot of times what will happen it's like okay i've got 30 minutes i know this kid doesn't practice at home we got to like hit it for these 30 minutes. Okay, five minutes of long tones, five minutes of slow scales and arpeggios with a metronome, 10 minutes of like an etude, 10 minutes of like an, a longer piece. That Then you're 20 minutes in. Then you've got like 10 minutes of like a wild card thing if they're working on improvisation or whatever. I can pack that in tight and just like cover a ton of things. But if they will literally not take the instrument out of the case the rest of the week, we might as well not do the lessons. It'll be four years of that half hour a week before we really even start to see anything. But if they can just give me three 30-minute practice sessions throughout the week plus the lesson, then it's a whole different ballgame. But it's just like, and this is, I always tell the parents too, it's like they got to, they got to to work on stuff at home. Otherwise, like you just don't even waste your money on the on lessons. This is one of the things that I love about having the virtual studio that I do, which if you haven't checked it out, it's basically just like a subscription website where I upload new lessons every week and there's like a lot of courses in there and there's a community and like transcription challenges and like there's a tune of the month all this stuff right it's all there for the taking and each individual person gets to decide what level of seriousness they want to take it if it's a hobby they can use it as a hobby they can just sort of go along with the tune of the month series and learn tunes and have fun playing with like play-alongs and learn some language and memorize some tunes and after a while they may sort of work up a repertoire and be able to go play with a band or jam session or whatever if you want to be more on like a high level you're more serious student you can choose to spend more time and you can say like okay maybe like I'm going to spend one hour a day digging into um, one specific lesson and, and just cover like one lesson a week and just go like, so that would be like seven hours just going really in depth on one lesson. You know, just things like that where it's like they can sort of decide and engage at the level of what they want and what they're comfortable in based on the goals that they have or or whatever they sort of decide to do versus like a lot of times private lessons people feel like just by showing up at the lesson they are actually moving the needle on their plane where i've had many students over the years where i would i've taught students every week for like multiple years and we saw very very little improvement 
And it's like, you know, why are you even coming? That's that's $120 a month if they're doing a half hour lesson. And I had students doing hour long lessons. They would give me $240 a month and never take their instrument out of their case when they were home, if they weren't at the lesson. I just don't, and I think it goes into that thing of like, it's, it makes you feel good that you're going to lessons with this professional musician. And, you know, even if it is just a hobby, and I understand that, I, I, I do get that, you know, it's like, you know, it's like people that would treat golf as a hobby. Maybe they would go play golf every Sunday, but they're not going to practice their golf game at all throughout the week ever. So they never get better at golf and it's just fun for them. That's fine. I understand that. I think it's better that if you're upfront with your teacher about that and then you're both on the same page and then maybe the teacher isn't disappointed that you never practice and never improve. That's a whole different thing. I, you know, that's cool. And, you know, people can, I think there are some people that, um, maybe use my virtual studio in that way as well, which I actually think is kind of a cool thing. I've just never thought of music as just a hobby that I don't want to get better at. I always wanted to improve. And so for me, it's like I wanted to offer something where people could really engage with it at their own level. It's not like I say you have to do this lesson every week. It's It's more of like, Yes, there are systematic courses that are in place and you can follow along with those that you want or you can sort of treat it like an a la carte thing where it's like, I wanna work on some language stuff, I wanna work on some ear training, different things and I'm gonna pick and choose or it's some combination of both going with the structured courses and adding the a la carte stuff. Um, that's the thing that I like because it's, you know, Again, it comes down to being honest with yourself and saying, okay, I'm going to buckle down and say, even if I have like a full-time job, I'm going to work on this stuff 30 minutes a day and I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to say 30 minutes a day every day for maybe like a month or maybe say like three months. And then after that time, you'll really know what is possible in terms of being consistent. I think a lot of people never really even reach that point but the thing is like, and I've noticed this with myself, when I set up a fairly structured practice routine because I wanted to work on like even just basics of sound and improvisation, man, after like even just two to three months of of doing it, I was like, wow, okay, this is like serious. And the consistency thing is probably the number one thing when it comes to practicing. Um, because then you're just you're able to build on what you have and a lot of times we just sort of end up getting to like a whatever level and then we're just trying to like maintain that and we do just enough to just hold the level there instead of actually finding ways to raise the bar and and really like push the needle forward all right well i've uh just been letting myself sort of uh, go off on a tangent, which is fine. I guess that's also sort of the point of this podcast. And I sort of like that because it, you know, I think when it comes down to it, if I just sort of let myself just sort of uh, go off in a stream of conscious way, it's the good thing is that I think, you know, if you think in that way or talk or write in that way, it allows 
you to sort of, uh, well, I guess your brain is sort of like a magnet to whatever it feels like is most important. And it gets drawn back to those important things. And that's what allows you to sort of work those things out in your head, you know, which is good because uh, it sort of tells me what I guess my subconscious thinks is the most important thing to think with about or deal with at this moment. Um, and so, yeah, that's uh, when I think, you know, cause like years ago I would go into schools like middle schools and high schools and teach lessons. And it was exactly the same deal. It was like, okay, I would see a student for 30 minutes once a week, every week, and we, a year would go by and they still wouldn't know all their major scales, for example. That would be one thing. <laughs> and I'm like, this system is just like broken in so many ways. Or it's, it's just good enough to where it makes the band directors happy because the students can play their wind ensemble music where it's like, okay, there are bands, there were like middle school level bands in Japan that blow American high school bands out of the water. Now, I'm not saying that their the system of education in Japan is better necessarily, and it may be overly rigorous, and the kids may hate music and feel like they're just being like forced to practice all this time. I don't, I don't really know. I'm just saying like I've heard some of these bands, and it's mind-blowing how good you can actually be at an instrument at a young age. And I'm not saying like they all started when they were four years old. Like a lot of them still started around the same age as students in the US, but it's just like, they're not messing around. They're not just like showing up to their lesson and have not worked on their stuff at all. Um, it's almost like uh, there needs to be a way of the student checking in or the parents or some sort of like, I don't know, if there was like an, an app where a student could easily just record themselves, it would go into this database and it would check off like 20 minutes a day of actual quality practice time. And then it would just, the teacher would just get like this report of like, boom, boom, boom. And the parents would get it too. They would get a notification. Everybody's on the same page. So there's no, so this would just help cut out the line basically. <laughs> That's the thing. And it's just like, it's more just like accountability, right? Because as it stands now, it's just like the student shows up and says like, yeah, I didn't, I practiced or I didn't have time to practice, which that's oh, okay. Don't even get me started on that. Like really literally every minute of your past week was scheduled out for you. I'm sorry. No. Um, even the kids that have like freaking extracurricular activities after school every day. You know, okay. But like in terms of, yeah, there is some way where, or this, parents could check in with the teachers like once a week, you know, maybe the day before the lesson, the parents would know how much the student practiced or, you know, this little, if there was just a little way of like creating this accountability and this became like the norm because as it is now, it's the same problem. It's like, well, if the student is into it, 
they're going to practice. If they're not, that's fine too, but then maybe music isn't necessarily the best use of their time. Maybe there's like another art class or photography, something that lights their fire where it's like they actually want to do this when they're at home, when they're not, when they don't have parental supervision or the supervision of their teacher. You know what I mean? It's like, why are we trying to just like hammer this nail into a square hole (laughs) or a square peg into a round hole? That's what it feels like a lot of times with like, teaching so it's like I that's another thing that I like about the studio is that people contact me asking questions about the studio like what's it like those are the people that are hungry for the knowledge and they are seeking it out those are the kinds of students that I like because they are doing this they don't need a a lesson with me once a week they just have access to this they get my email every Friday and then it's like oh they're in there and they're working on stuff at their pace and they sort of like choose and they can check in with me and get help and feedback and stuff. And I can sort of like help them organize their practice time or like what they work on, that sort of thing. But they are sort of guiding themselves in terms of what they want to learn and how they're going to do it. And so, yeah, I really like that. So let's see. Yeah, um, I'm going to talk about like what's been going on because I know I I said that I had to delay putting out the podcast and there so I'm going to be getting into that too um well I guess we can sort of work backwards last night I had the chance to lead the rehearsal of the Butler University Jazz Ensemble which is a lot of fun this is a school that I teach at it's like five minutes away from my house which is awesome and right now I'm just teaching combo a a combo class and then also jazz arranging and it's nice I mean I don't you know I'm I don't do a whole lot there but it's like cool going over there and like interacting there's a lot of good students and it's a really um cool program it's on the smaller side but it's like they have a lot of quality stuff going on and so they have the legendary bassist John Clayton coming in this week to play with him and do master classes and so they're working on some of his music so I got to go listen to one of their last rehearsals they have before the concert and just sort of help them polish a few things and give some suggestions and help out soloists a little bit and work on some rhythm section stuff and then just polish like just a couple of little ensemble things and yeah it's a lot of fun they were like really receptive and um yeah I enjoyed it and it's been great like working with the combo that I have there there's some really good players in there we've been doing some harder music like we're playing like some Coltrane tunes um they've been doing moments notice and giant steps and we started working on giant steps in seven just a little bit and they're playing inner urge and a lot of other cool tunes like they're doing uh sing a song of song by Kenny Garrett um and then also like original compositions by band members. They're doing that tricky Josh Redmond tune, Jazz Crimes. And uh, yeah, just like a lot of potential. And they're like, man, like the more they play, they just gel even more. It's just like really cool to see. Um, One thing that I've been doing too is bringing in some of my music and having them 
run through some of my stuff and sort of lead that. And so like in the band, we've got alto, uh, trumpet, guitar, bass, and drums. And then I've been writing music basically for that instrumentation, but tenor instead of alto and then adding piano. And um, I've been writing this for this new band that I'm leading. And so I wanted to bring in music for that band or for my Butler combo, my music, so that they would sort of have the experience of seeing me work through it. So I'm like having them play it. I'll, I'll play piano and then we'll play through some parts. I'll, I'll sort of like tweak some things and then play it again and or change things up. And it's it's helpful for me to sort of like hear this stuff and work it out in real time versus just like relying on the finale playback. But it also allows the students the chance to actually see someone like myself who's like a who actually like writes a good amount of music to sort of get my thought process and hear, you know, have them notice the things that I'm hearing and then things that I like or want to change. And then also sort of explaining specific things to them, like, you know, telling the drummer, I like want this part on the ride symbol or explaining to the guitar player how I want them to comp on this section to help give it a certain vibe. And all these little things help the music just have more shape and, you know, just being aware of like all the little nuances that are available to us when we're playing instrumental music that has like a lot of freedom to it. So yeah, that's been nice. Um, and they've been, that combo's had a chance to do a lot of extra performances this semester and it's been great for them. It's, it's all been like really good experiences and just like great opportunities to learn. Um, so yeah, that's been good. Um, all right. I'm going to take a break, although there won't really be a break here cause I'm just going to hit pause and then I'll be back a little later. Okay, we are back after a little lunch and practicing break. Um, we are going to resume. I realized that I guess maybe I just don't have like vocal endurance or something, but trying to record uh, long episodes. Um, sorry, thought I had a sneeze coming. Um, Maybe I, maybe I do, maybe I don't. Okay. Yeah. Trying to like record long periods of talking is somewhat difficult. And I realized that in the previous episodes of this podcast, if I tried to talk for over two hours straight, I would have a, almost like a sore throat the rest of the day. So I've, I realized it's probably wisest if I sort of like split this up. Um, and it has begun to sprinkle here in Indianapolis. And if you hear that rain, that is just uh, the raindrops on the skylights of this studio here, or this uh, rehearsal room, garage renovation, whatever you want to call this space. Um, so I was talking about working over at Butler last night and then um, on, uh, well, two days ago, uh, I had a, an, this awesome rehearsal, first rehearsal with this new band. Uh, and this is the thing that's been mainly taking up my time and why this podcast is a little later than I wanted it to be. 
I'm just trying to finish the music for this group. And I didn't quite get as much done as I wanted to, but I'm happy with what we have. We have uh, four originals of mine, and then I think we might possibly a fifth, and then um, a couple of a couple of other compositions uh, by other people. And it's such an awesome experience playing with these guys. I've played with everyone in this group in different settings, but we've never played in this exact configuration. So I'm playing tenor and soprano, and then on trumpet and flugelhorn we have John Raymond. On guitar we have Joel Tucker. On piano is Steve Ali. On bass is Nick Tucker, and on drums is Cassius Goins. And the cool thing was that I was able to get them a lot of the music ahead of time and get them demo recording so that they had an idea of what things sounded like. So a lot of it we could just jump in and nail on the first time. There are a couple of little tricky things that we were working out. And we have a gig coming up on Friday, April 15th. If you are close enough to Indianapolis where you want to come hear us, it's going to be at the Jazz Kitchen. And we just play one set, so you just get one chance. <laughs> um, but I'm excited about this group. I mean, everybody is just top notch and just to like combine these elements together. It's almost like if you're a painter and you're taking all these different colors and layering things, it's like there's so many possibilities with the, with six people. It's like I can have just bass and saxophone playing something or just like flugelhorn and soprano. You know what I mean? Like all these different tonal combinations and we can get all this like whole spectrum of colors and man in terms of like composing it's just like a dream it's a dream band but also just like dream instrumentation for a while it it I was always kind of avoiding writing for piano and guitar in the same band because I felt like I didn't really know how to use them but now if I sort of reframe it in my mind so that I can think of guitar almost as like a third horn sometimes. So it's like there are parts when I can have the guitar double the horn melody in unison or an octave below, or the guitar can also double the bass an octave above, or I can have just guitar and piano playing a line together, which that's something I haven't done a lot of, but I want to try to utilize that more for sure too. Um, yeah, so that's, it's really exciting. And, um, I'm really happy with the the first four originals of mine that are done, and we're definitely going to be recording this stuff um, eventually. So, yeah, that's that's been something I've been working on. For the the meat of this podcast, <laughs> when we get to it, I'm going to be talking about transcription. So I I got a question to the email address for this podcast, which if you don't know it is saxophonejournal at gmail.com send me a message, a question. I'm going to be answering listener questions um, on this podcast as well. And I got a really good one about transcription. So I figured that would be a great topic to really delve into because I know a lot of people either have questions with this or they struggle with it in some manner. So this is, and it's one of the most important things in my mind um, in terms of learning how to play. So, and one of the things that has helped me the most. So we're going to be getting into that. Um, but if you think of any questions, you know, it can be about music, saxophone, or just whatever random things, or if you just want to say hello, that's the email to use. 
and yeah so send me some mail and I also wanted to remind anyone listening although I think probably the core of this audience is people that are already on my newsletter email list um, because that's really the only place that I've told about this podcast but I'm sure people will eventually just find it just by searching Um, but I have this email list um, that I send out to twice a month it's every first and third Friday and I send different things that I think typically musicians or people that are actually practicing in music or working on improvisation or saxophone players you don't have to be a saxophone player um, you might find interesting so for example um, well let me just pull up so what I'm doing is backlogging these emails um, on my website so that people can easily find it if they maybe had um, had something that they liked and then they maybe either deleted the email or can't find it you can just go to my website seananbowden.com and in the blog these will be all of the emails essentially that I've sent out and then they're easy to find and eventually when I have more I'm going to probably organize them by category but for now they're just sort of like in this list um so let's see we've got five out so far the first one was sean's practice room and that was basically telling you about the youtube series that i already mentioned in this podcast the second one was called maximize your practice time this weekend and that's where i sent out my improvisation guidebook and a little practice kit which has like practice sheets and I talk about this there's a link to a video with it too where it's I'm sort of explaining what I consider to be my practice routine and different things that have helped me with that and then the third one was saxophone journal podcast so just telling everybody on the list about this exact thing and then um, the fourth one was my transcription playlist and this is I sent a little video explaining how I use this and then there's a a download zip file with I guess maybe like 15 or 20 solos that are just cut so it's just the solo and so you can get like a lot of listening in and if you want to just like put a track on repeat or like just a few tracks or the whole playlist on repeat Um, and then the fifth one was called an, an etude for you and I sent out the saxophone part to a one of my compositions that we play with the trio with guitar and bass um, and so yeah you want to get on that email list and you'll be getting all this stuff just twice a month um, and I mean I think it's cool to like you know some people find this stuff just interesting just to know like what another musician is sort of working on and and sharing things of their process and I think it's kind of inspiring and but also could be very practical too and if you're struggling with something I'm going to be covering a lot of topics where it's like like I'm going to do today talking about transcription but different things about just like how to like keep this ball rolling and continue improving and just like making this 
music thing actually happen. Um, but that brings me to the next thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about, which was this recent trio concert I played, which was this group with Joel Tucker on guitar and Jesse Whitman on bass. So I've been writing music for a while for these guys and we've done some performances and we finally did one in this nice recital hall um, on the campus of Butler University. And it was great. It went really well. I mean, there's still some improvements we can make with some of the music. It's challenging. It, there's like a lot of sections where we're playing things that are fully composed for like many consecutive pages in a row where typically you know with that group and with really any jazz musicians we typically when we're performing most of the time now we're just playing gigs where we're playing tunes and 90 percent of what we're doing is improvised um so having these guys play a lot of written out stuff and not necessarily easy stuff either not like crazy difficult but just maintaining focus and playing it really well together is a little bit of a challenge and I realized that we're sort of pushing ourselves out of our typical comfort zone which wasn't really one of the initial goals but I actually kind of like it <laughs> because I think at least for me it forces me to practice in a way where it's like okay I just want to be able to do something simple like play an A in the low register and then jump up to a high C and make the high C like perfectly in tune. And on like a modern Yamaha or like any of the really modern good horns that are great for classical music, that's a lot easier than on my horn. I'm not trying to make an excuse. It's just like a fact of the physical object that I'm using. But the thing about my horn is that it's like the sound is it's unique and in my opinion much better suited for the music that I'm playing I mean I know some people out there disagree <laughs> with this but all I would say to that is look at all of the top tenor saxophone players in the world if you just put a list of like say whatever you think like the 20 top jazz tenor saxophone players in the world is um, 18 out of 20 of those people will be playing some type of vintage Selmer, whether it's a Mark VI, an SBA, or a BA, which is what I play. And the, it's not like, um, it's not like it's a thing where everyone's being fooled. These are like the people with the most refined sensitive ears to these instruments and we've all tried the new horns too and i'm not putting myself in that list i'm just putting myself in <laughs> tenor jazz tenor player list but all of these these top players they've all tried like these other horns Every, trust me everybody's curious we would all love to just get a new horn for like three grand or something and get rid of the old horns. They break down, they, they take more repairs, and they don't play as well in tune, but the sound is the thing. So it's like, you gotta just deal with the intonation thing. You gotta learn to adjust enough to the point where you can make it work, because you're not gonna get, you can't get that sound on a Yamaha, Kyle Worth, Cannonball, whatever, what anything. It's just not the same. You can get close, 
but it's not there yet. Um, I honestly hope that it somebody gets it there because if we can actually produce horns where it's the same sound, we that would be just good for everyone. You know, if it was more affordable, if you didn't have to spend 10 grand to get the best possible saxophone sound. Um, yeah, that would be awesome. So anyway, um, yeah, really trying to shed this trio music so that it could act, I could actually pull it off. Now I'm not to the point where it's like, I'm playing this stuff as well as like a classical saxophonist would play it. Um, I would love to try to get close to that world. And I'm not saying that I want to even change my setup or get a modern horn or put a any one of the classical mouthpieces on because then again, I'm losing a lot of the quality of sound. I want to maintain the same sound I have, but just be able to play this other stuff. In a way, I'm making it extra hard on myself there because I've tried like, uh, I had like a ton of tenor mouthpieces a few years ago and I sold almost all of them. But one of them was this Eugene Rousseau piece. And I think it was maybe like a five opening or yeah, I think it was a five. And I put that thing on and I was like, oh my goodness, I can zip around. It plays better in tune. The response is easier. I can play much longer phrases because I don't lose as much air. Um, you know, and I didn't actually record myself with the mouthpiece. Um, so, you know, I don't, I, my guess was that the sound wasn't quite, um, up to what I like my sound to be, but it was much easier to play much easier. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's just how it is. I may, I don't know. I may try to strike a balance at some point, but for now I'm, I'm, pretty happy with how it's how it's going so like yeah trying to work on this stuff it really forced me to practice some things that I haven't really worked on a lot um, and so I feel like I sort of went through a, a little period of growth in my playing where you know I'm forcing myself to play these specific things in these pieces and it some of it was just like hard to pull off and I'm still not nailing all of it the way that I want to but it's getting closer and I feel like I will be able to get there. I feel like I'm really close to getting it just how I want. Um, but yeah, the, it was nice. Like after the concert, um, we got a, a lot of really nice positive response. And even one of my good friends who was in undergrad with me at IU ended up being at the concert and he gave me a really nice compliment just about the music and everything and to me that's like okay good then it's like it's kind of working and still it's still not like quite where i want it to be in terms of like i was saying me playing everything and then also as a trio us like fully um uh, i mean we're nailing most of the music but there's sections where it's like we can get more comfortable and we can make things gel a little bit more and I want to keep writing stuff more to, as well for the group. But I think overall it was it was good. I'm happy with how it's going. So we're going to like record this stuff and and uh, I'm going to continue to write more because I have a lot of things I want to try. A lot of sort of like 
pieces I've started or half written pieces. And I, um, I just like to let stuff like really bake before I just start playing it. I don't, I've done it before. I sort of had tried to perform like half baked things and it's just like, I, I can really tell the, the difference. And I feel like everyone listening sort of, even if they're not fully aware they're you know, the ones that I've really let develop and given time to make them really strong compositions, then they're just better overall. So, um, yeah. And then it's as far as the six piece band, um, you know, and thinking about composition for both of the groups, one big thing that I tend to think of now that really helps me is actually trying to write for specific instrumentation as opposed to writing for style or genre, just because, you know, it's like, if you just say, oh, I'm just going to write a jazz tune. Well, okay. What does that mean? Does that just mean like, Ding, 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 ding. just like walking bass drums and then whatever I mean why does that have to be the norm okay so it's like if you want that you can get that but you again like you don't even have to have drums for that you can just have bass or you could just make just make that sound happen with other instruments you know it's like I just don't like this sort of cookie cutter thing where it's like, well, bass and drums and it's always going to do this thing or, you know, that's also one of the exciting things for me about writing for guitar, saxophone and bass, that trio, we have plenty of rhythm, melody and harmony with that group. And it's just a matter of like manipulating the various combinations and qualities of those instruments to see what we can come up with. Like, we even just played last night again with that group and we did one of the pieces and at the end of one of the pieces we have this thing where we're all holding a note and then we hit this little line together that ends the piece and it was always a little bit challenging because right there that's one of those moments where like having drums would just make it easier but it's like in this setting it's like we all have to really like feel that pulse so that we're hitting this last little phrase together and Joel the guitar player did this cool little like arpeggio that was in time or just sort of like outline the chord in a very guitarish way and it made it so much easier to end the piece because then we could all hear that time rather than just feeling the pulse internally and then just trying to hit this last thing together things like that where it's like oh my goodness it's useful and it sounded really cool um i love finding stuff like that things that that work really well with this group because that just makes the music stronger and makes it more fun, easier to play as well. And just a better final product. Um, so yeah. Um, let's see what else is going on. I've been going to the symphony, um, more frequently now. And, uh, Typically, we like to try to catch all of the classical music concerts with the symphony that we can if we're free. Um, and man, whenever there's like a concerto, I love sitting up close and just like parking myself right in front of the soloist, which is what we did 
this past Friday night. There was this amazing violin soloist. His name was Alexi Kenny. And it was he was just mind-blowing. And the nice thing, too, is that my knowledge of classical music is fairly limited so that if I show up for a concert, most of it to me is new, even though, you know, they're playing for the most part, pretty old stuff. Um, I'm not super well-versed in it like I am jazz. So it's like, yeah, I don't really know. And so like a piece like that, the violin concerto that he played was not only stunning in terms of like his performance and technique and everything, but like all the music as it unfolds is like a, it's like a brand new thing to me. So it's like doubly cool in that way. So yeah, I really like that. Um, well, let's see, I guess I can go ahead and start getting into the main topic of the day, which is transcription. So let me pull up my email. Um, and again, it's saxophonejournal at gmail.com. And you can send me some electronic mail. Okay, so this was um, a response I got from a listener or a uh, member of the email newsletter list. And his name is Sammy. And he says, hi, Sean, thanks for sending your transcription list. He's referring to the zip file with um, just solos that I'm learning or wanting to learn that I sent out. He says, do you transcribe these solos to paper? Do you learn these solos without paper transcription? Do you suggest that we actually transcribe to paper and or learn the solos direct to fingers without paper? Also, what equipment are you currently playing on? SBA or Mark VI with replacement neck? And what setup? Thanks in advance, Sammy. All right. Well, this plays into exactly what I was talking about earlier. <laughs> the equipment question. Uh, put that one in the large bin of all the equipment sound related questions. So thank you for the question, Sammy. And I'll just answer the equipment one first. I have a video now, which I believe is called My Tenor Saxophone Setup. You, it's on the YouTube channel. So every time somebody asks me this question, I'm going to direct them to this video. And spoiler alert, the most important thing is not the equipment. Now, that may be hard to believe. I know because like, especially if you're like a young player, you know, and you haven't maybe tried a lot of equipment and you hear people playing and you see people playing a lot, especially like a lot of these vintage horns. You may think, oh, I just have to like get that and I'm going to sound like whoever, Brecker, Joe Lovano, Chris Potter, Mark Turner, Branford Marsalis, Seamus Blake, um, Joe Henderson. All these people that I just listed play or played vintage Selmers, if not currently, then for a long time. So 
the equipment question is answered in the YouTube video. For everyone wanting that, you can easily find it. And if you have any questions after that, after that video, then you can ask me specific questions about setup that maybe relate after you've watched the video. But the video should inform you of all of my thoughts on this matter, as well as telling you in pretty good detail exactly everything that I play on. Um, but yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's dig into his first three questions, um, getting into transcription. So I'm going to give the short answers first, and then we're going to delve into this topic in more detail. So he says, do you transcribe these solos to paper? Okay, so I think this is a good question. The question you want to ask yourself is why or what would the purpose be of putting it to paper, right? Because you want to know exactly why you're doing something. But say, let's just say you're learning like a solo on a blues of somebody playing it. And you, let's say you've chosen to learn it from the recording. So you, it's just you, your instrument, and whatever recording device you're using. If it's like your phone, computer, boombox, CD player, record player, eight track, cassette player, Walkman, whatever mode you're getting it from. If you are just learning it directly from that and you have your instrument and you're playing it, you play a little bit of the recording, then you stop it and then you try to figure out those notes on your instrument, play a little bit more, then you try to play along with the recording. There's, so there's no paper involved yet, let's say. If you're just doing that and you're able to do that, and you can get to the point where you can play along with the, the whole solo, you learn the whole solo, you know the solo, right? Um, what would actually be the purpose of writing it down? Is it so that, well, I mean, if you know the solo, then you don't need to read the music, right? Okay, so, but let's say you've learned the solo, but you don't necessarily know how everything works. And what I mean by that is like, you don't know how the notes that you're playing fit the harmony, because that's important to know, because that's gonna actually help you to digest this material and it's going to help you learn this material and then incorporate this language that you've learned in other situations where you are soloing even on other tunes, maybe other tunes that have similar chords and things like that. So the purpose for me of actually writing a solo on paper is so that I can see where the where in the form of the tune the lines actually land so that I know what chords lines are being played over. So let's say we're playing a blues, or we're learning a blues, a solo on a blues. And let's say, I'm just gonna sing a little bit. Okay, so now, if I learn those four measures, and let's say I really like that line. And 
Now, let's say I've learned it from the syllable, but I haven't written it down yet, and I can't maybe figure out where in the form those notes fall. Now, if I take the time to write it out, what will happen is I will get to that point, and I'll see that those lines fall in bars three and four. Now what I can see is, now I know what the chord is in bars three and four, and I can see exactly what notes this person played on those two measures, and I can figure out, oh, okay. So they're going root six, five, six, fives, root four, three, root seven, all right, so now, um, yeah, I don't have perfect pitch, so I don't know what key I'm singing in, but let's say I'm just singing in concert F. Now I can see that exactly what these notes are in F7, which is the chord for these two bars, and I can see exactly how they fit the chord and where they are in the form and exactly how they fit in with everything. Now, beyond the actual oral knowledge that I gained from learning the solo directly from the recording, the purpose for me when writing it out is to know exactly how this stuff works and what it is in terms of the harmony of the tune. Now there are cases where you may not need to do that. You may know a tune well enough where you can think of the form in your head as you're playing through it, which once you've transcribed for a while, that becomes pretty much the norm, right? So writing things down, I think, is only a good idea if, you're t if you totally can't figure out how the line fits in the changes or in the form. Um, you know, because if you really know a solo from the recording, and you haven't learned it from paper, you're gonna have it all in your head. And you could even say like, if you say you did know how everything fits the form, you could say, okay, I really liked that one little line in like the third chorus, bars five and six, and I know it fits in these chords. I'm gonna take that line and I'm gonna incorporate it in maybe another solo that I'm playing on a tune that has similar changes or the same changes in a different key or in the same key. Or you could say, I'm gonna take that little line, those two bars, and I'm gonna learn it in all 12 keys. Or I'm just gonna really shed it in a couple of really hard keys. You know, little things like that are really helpful, and you don't need paper for that. Um, again, transcription, well, I guess I didn't really say this, so I can't say it again, but <laughs> the whole point of transcription is to learn language and develop your ears. You don't need paper for either of those things. Um, that leads into Sammy's second question, which is, do you learn these solos without paper transcription? Absolutely. So I almost never will look at a paper transcription. The only reason I would do that is if I'm like completely stuck like maybe if I'm learning a Brecker solo and he's doing like a really fast thing that I just can't, I just can't get all of the notes. And I can get pretty much everything nowadays unless somebody's playing something where it's like 
so unclear, you know, where it's like, um, without slowing it down, it's physically impossible to actually hear every single note in, in something. But even like if Gregor's playing double time, I can almost always get it just, and not without slowing it down, just like playing little sections over and over and piecing it together. The only way I would check a paper transcription if I was absolutely stumped on like one little tiny section, um, then I would see, okay, but I, I've actually never used the amazing slower downer, which is the thing that a lot of people use to transcribe. And I think it's best if you don't use that when you're transcribing single line solos. Now, as one astute student brought to my attention, it can be useful if you're trying to transcribe chords because I guess, you know, a lot of times if somebody's comping something quickly and they're just hitting quick chords, um, you may not actually have enough sound happening to be able to identify all the pitches. But say it's you've slowed it down, then the chord will sort of like sustain, and if it can sustain at pitch, then you can actually sit there and try to listen um, more in depth to that specific chord and, and try to pick out notes. There I can see the value in it. But as far as like transcribing single lines, no. I would avoid doing the slowing down thing because then you're sort of cheating yourself of making it difficult on your ears, which is sort of the point. Like it's supposed to be hard. That's how you get your ears get more tuned into this stuff. Um, so yeah, almost never use paper transcriptions. And you know, for a while I was uh, putting up solos online and I was making the PDFs available and even selling PDFs of solos for a while on my website. And I think mainly that was me sort of testing the waters as far as like how this whole like using the internet as a music person could work. But I do not advocate, you know, if you want to learn a Charlie Parker solo, going and just buying the PDF and just playing and just reading the PDF. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not the way. Um, Cause then, then this is another thing that I will really stress in the virtual studio. Like when we're learning tunes, not learning something with your eyes, but learning it with your ears. And this is one of the major downfalls of the public uh, school music system, which is that Almost everyone learns everything with a music stand in front of them and sheet music every day in band class or orchestra, whatever you're in. And what's even worse uh, is if people like are in that situation and their band director just sings them, sings to them every part. So they don't, they don't even learn to really read music that well. Now there is a, an upside, I guess, to just being able to imitate what your band director is singing. But, um, again, it's not, they don't continue that it's, they just do that with like easier music and they don't really continue that on to like continue to challenge the student's ears with more and more things. It's sort of like they just get them rolling, reading music rather than forcing them to really understand how a written rhythm sounds and how it should feel and everything. Um, so, yeah, transcription, it's, the point of it is to learn the language and make your ears stronger. So 
you wouldn't want to use paper transcription. And oh yeah, so I, what I was saying about, I was selling PDFs of solos and, um, you know, it's like a, in a way it's sort of just like a crutch where it's like, okay, if somebody is just getting into playing jazz or improvising, there's like, oh, I can just like buy the solo and just play it and that'll like help me learn jazz. If that's what they think, then they're, they're not right. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, basically like, trust me, no one who is a great player now just would like get transcription books or PDFs and just play it and then just go play tunes and improvise. That never has happened. Um, that's not, no. Um, it all comes from hearing the stuff and learning it by ear to the point where then you can reproduce those intervals on your own without music. It doesn't come from music. It doesn't leave from music. It's just like, it's just all about sound and hearing things. Um, I'm going to get into this, these specific things more, but I just want to get to Sammy's third thing. He says, do you suggest that we actually transcribe to paper and or learn the solos direct to fingers without paper? So yeah, you know, and I think this, I've already basically covered this, but yeah, directly to your instrument. So I actually have like sort of a more in-depth, um, transcription process, which I'm wanting, I'm going to want to do a course on this in the studio where it's like, I think it's, it'll probably just be called like my transcription process where I break it down and, um, get into like the details of what I think is the smartest way to, to actually do this because you'll be able to get the most value from it. But essentially in a nutshell, it is listening to a solo many, many times before you even try to play it at all. Listening to the point where you can either sing along or whistle along if you're into whistling, which I am, or um, just hearing it very clearly in your head to the point where you can basically hear everything and you can basically sing along in your head. From there, you can do sort of like one of two things. I think probably the smartest thing, but also the most challenging thing is to actually, hopefully it's on like a tune you know. I think that's usually a smart way, especially getting started, is like choose a solo on a tune that you already know the chord progression from memory. So you've got this solo in your head, right? You know the tune. Now you wanna sort of like connect the dots and say like, okay, where in the form is he playing this stuff and what notes is being are being played here, right? So it's like like we're saying on the blues, that example, that's what you wanna do as much as possible in your head before you even pick up your instrument. So if we take that Charlie Parker solo, that little thing, that like iconic first four bars of the Now's the Time solo. What you want to be able to do is hear that and 
imagine what the notes are. Ba, 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 da. So one, two, flat three, natural three, four, sharp four, ba, ba, da, ba, ba, da. You know what I mean? That level of like, oh, I can hear these notes. Now, it's somewhat difficult to find enough solos like that for beginners. Like if you haven't transcribed, find a solo where you can actually do that in your head. Because typically for a beginner, it's like, that's very challenging. And by beginner, I don't mean beginner at your instrument. I mean beginner transcriber. So great examples would be like the Miles Davis solo on So What, for example. That one, even a beginner could hear sections of that and sort of think about what the notes are before getting their instrument. Um, so that's what you want to do. You want to be able to hear and know as much as you possibly can in your head before you get your instrument. Then when you get your instrument, you can figure out a lot really fast and it'll, you'll, you'll start to start to be able to like fill in the holes of the stuff you weren't quite sure with your instrument. Cause you, that, at that point your instrument is sort of a crutch and it helps you find these other notes and help all the notes sort of like light up in terms of like, you know what they are. Then if you have that really strong foundation already in your mind, when you get your instrument, it's like, boom, it just like really starts to happen. Um, then, like I was saying, you wanna to get to the point where you can just play the whole solo along with the recording. So again, paper is not involved, no PDFs, no sheet music. You gotta just like do it with your ears. If you're not able to do this, basically what that means is you wanna find an easier solo. Um, like, like if you're stumped or you think transcribing isn't for you or you like you think it's too hard, just try to back off and find like, you know, find players that don't go crazy. <laughs> um, great examples, Miles Davis, Chet Baker, um, some Stan Getz, um, some Winton Kelly, um, some Art Pepper, you know, guys like this fine even if it's just one chorus you know obviously like you don't even have to start with full solos just find one chorus of a chet baker blues like a 12 bar blues you will be able to learn that without music even if you've never transcribed before it is possible it may even still be challenging because getting into transcribing is never really that easy even for talented musicians um but just taking the time you know dumbing things down again like if you're a high schooler for example and you you've been told oh you should transcribe don't go just turn on giant steps and be like oh transcribing is too hard <laughs> like no you're starting with some of the hardest possible stuff you can you just got to go like even if it doesn't mean or even if, even if it means not starting with your main instrument you know um say you're a guitar player man learning the miles Davis solo on so what would would be awesome on guitar. That would be a great thing to learn. So that's where you want to. That's what you want to do. Um, after that, again, like what we were saying, you want to know exactly how the notes fit the chord so that you understand what they are doing harmonically. If you can't just think of that in your mind, that's where writing it down comes into play because then you can say, oh he's on bar eight on this thing and this is the chord in bar eight and I see exactly how what he's playing fits the chord. That's very helpful. When I was in my undergrad at IU, we did that a lot in saxophone masterclass where we had this projector where we would 
put the solos on somebody would get like a, a like a sharpie and then like go talk through it and explain like oh and this measure is like a little enclosure this here they're using like the bebop scale here just ways of helping us understand exactly what's happening and how it fits the changes if you put that knowledge with what you hear that's where you get to the point where you can really start improvising so um and actually um there have been a lot of little like mini success stories in the virtual studio of students because every month we have a transcription challenge and i always try to find something that's very doable no matter what level you're at but and a lot of times it's even just like one chorus or like um said a couple months ago there was like a one chorus solo of louis armstrong on on the sunny side of the street killing amazing solo a great one to learn just by ear and it could it was one that I think even like somebody who's never transcribed before could learn it. But at the same time, amazing like groove and time feel and a lot to learn for like an advanced player. So, you know, people have sometimes even if they just learn like uh, two to four measures of one of the solos and they'll email it back to me and they're like, hey, check this out. I'm like, yes, this is what it's about. You know, finding the things that you can actually do rather than trying to like, cause you know, 99% of jazz solos are gonna be too hard for somebody that's never really transcribed to try to transcribe. But once you get into it, your ears get much more finely attuned and you're able to start learning much more difficult things pretty quickly. You just gotta stick with it. A lot of things, a lot of times people get turned off because they're just trying to do something that's too hard. They can't get it then the, and they don't understand like how it's fitting the tune and the changes. And so they give up, but just like, you know, learn, start with some easy ones. Like those, the list I just said of those musicians and then build up to the people that you really want to get or, you know, whoever, um, that's the biggest thing. Um, and yeah, again, just don't be scared to, um, start with stuff that you think might be too easy because that might actually be exactly what you need. And, you know, like a Miles Davis blues solo, like a medium tempo where he's like holding notes out, that's that's such good music too. Even if it's maybe not your thing, just being aware of that and digesting a little bit of his style and language and just his concept, you're gonna get so much out of that. And it's just going to feed your own um, musical concept, which, you know, I think that's a, uh, eventually what everyone wants to have. They want to have their own voice. And that, uh, sort of leads me into another point I wanted to get into, which is David Baker, who was, um, the longtime jazz studies, um, head at IU, which is where I went and played with like all of the greats back in the day. And you can hear him just blazing on the trombone on the George Rush, George Russell aesthetics album. Um, so the big thing that David would say was that when you learn to play, there are three stages and we're talking about learning to improvise. Well, the first stage is imitation. Second is assimilation. And the third is innovation. And he would say that almost nobody gets to the third stage. 
So let's break that down. The first stage, imitation, right? Like that's obvious. Um, we can even imagine like a baby when they're first starting to speak, uh, imitating just like the sound of a voice of a, of one of their parents. And as they get older, their imitation becomes more clear to the point where, where you can understand words they're saying. And then they start assimilating this information that the language and vocabulary and naturally they understand grammar because you just pick that up when you're listening. They start assimilating all of this into uh, sentences that actually make sense and they can get things that they want like, I am hungry or I am tired rather than when they're a baby, they would just start crying because they couldn't actually express themselves when they were uh, tired where they couldn't express themselves with words where the adults could understand. Instead, they just start crying if they're tired. So you're assimilating the information. And then as far as innovation, you're taking all this information, you're able to actually make something unique, original or new um, with this pool of uh, language that you have gained. So in terms of music, um, when you first are like listening to a lot of music, the best thing you can do is just try to play along and imitate what they're doing. Then when we're talking about transcription, this is where the assimilation stage, the second stage really starts to happen. You're gaining all of this specific knowledge and language that fits chord changes. You're understanding how it works. Again, you're gaining like, like this massive vocabulary, like when you were a toddler or a young person growing up like you learn all these new words, then you're able to use them in a way that how you, or how you want to, you can use them to express yourself or explain or describe or whatever it is that you're trying to do. So when, after you've transcribed a lot and you have all this information, then you get to decide how to use that information. And the more in depth you have digested um, people's language and concepts, like I'm talking about with Miles Davis, for example, that's just going to feed your own creativity and allow you to get to that point where you can innovate. Now that's very difficult because you sort of have to like really push yourself to just not regurgitate what other people have played. And that's something that I think a lot of people worry about. Like if, well, if I just transcribe like a bunch of Coltrane, then I'm just gonna play like Coltrane. Well, I think you will if you're not aware of it, right? Like the big thing is, um, I'll hear young players and it's like, I, I can clearly tell like who they've been checking out and which is good. I think that's a useful thing, but what you want is not to get stuck in that realm where it's like, Oh, they're definitely like, they're really into Coltrane. Um, one way I think of avoiding that is going in depth on multiple people. So if you just pick just one player, like for me, I was really into Mark Turner for a while and I was really, even when I would go play, I would try to really like play in his style. Cause I was like, this is something I really want to be able to get. But if I just kept doing that, it would almost be detrimental. So you have to find that balance. And I think going in depth on multiple people. So let's say you're your guitar player and let's just say that uh, Pat Metheny is your favorite player. Well, if you only go in on Pat Metheny it's just going to be such a strong uh, 
sort of like presence in your own plane that it might be sort of hard to even break out of a little bit. Um, but let's say you go really in depth on Pat Metheny, Gilad Hexelman, Lage Lund, although I'm not sure how you say his name, Laj, maybe, I don't know. Um, and uh, let's also say like uh, West Montgomery, um, and I don't know, pick whoever you want. If you're going in depth on all those people at the same level, then when you play, it's, you know, it's going to come out as more of like a mixture. And what's going to happen is you're going to be one of the better, well-informed musicians so that you're going to have so much musical knowledge that it's almost more of like a painter. Um, you could think of like, they have like all of these um, paint cans to choose from when they're trying to like paint this big masterpiece thing, right? If you only have like blue and red, well, you're very limited. Say you have like 20 different paint cans of all different shades of and colors, then it's like, oh, you have this huge palette to work with. Now you can really like create things. Um, let's say like I get a little bit of like the Matheny triad stuff and then I get a little bit of like the Gilad like thing where like the double time thing where, where he's able to like slide around the neck a little bit more, which is like different than like Pat Metheny. Like Pat Metheny doesn't really do that. And so they have very different sounds. So, you know, like that's what it's more about in terms of like just trying to go in depth on language and specific players because then you just have a, a deeper well of information of which to draw from when you are really trying to create. And um, down the road, eventually what happens is that you can just distill all this information into your own voice. And eventually you figure out how to just like play what you were hearing and really try to create things in the moment. So um, there was something else I was just thinking, I'm trying to, Let's see, talking about David Baker. Uh, oh, right, right, right. So if you haven't read the um, Benny Golson autobiography, I would highly recommend it. But he talks about when he first met John Coltrane. And they were both, uh, I think, maybe teenagers. And Benny Golson heard that a new good saxophone player had just moved to the neighborhood. And so he invited this person over and it was John Coltrane and John knocked on Benny Golson's door. Benny Golson opened the door and he said, he said, uh, John Coltrane had like a piece of like grass or straw or something hanging out of his mouth. And he said, he looked, he said Coltrane looked like a country bumpkin, which was just funny, but train had his alto. He was playing alto at the time. And so Benny Golson uh, didn't know what to say, so he just said, play something. So Coltrane got out his alto and he played. And Benny Golson said that Train, well, he played on the sunny side of the street and he said that Coltrane sounded exactly like Johnny Hodges. Now that's, to me, that's just like unbelievable. I can't imagine Coltrane sounding like Hodges. To me, they're like polar opposites. 
But what that tells me is that Train was really going in depth on, even if he wasn't really aware of it, he was learning this music by ear from players that he admired at the time. And he wasn't shying away from it. He was just going all in on this imitation stage. And at some point, he was assimilating this information so that he understood how chord changes worked and how the lines fit the chord changes. He was doing this very early on so that down the road, he was able to get, get to that point of innovation. He just kept going and going and going, you know? Um, and so that is to me like the perfect example of the story where it's like, well, if you're scared that you're just going to sound like other people, this is literally what the greatest jazz saxophone player of all time did. <laughs> if you want to find a new way where you say like, oh, I don't transcribe, then good luck is what I would say. But like basically the thing that, you know, people say they don't really, they never really transcribed. And they're like a good player, let's say. What I would say to that is just by listening to music and learning it just from the recording and understanding how it works, that's transcription. Like to me, it's not about writing it down. That's an unnecessary step like I've mentioned. Um, and it's not even about really even like playing it on your instrument. It's about knowing what it is in your mind right it's like okay if, if again if i hear a solo where somebody plays that line i forget what i sang um and i know what those notes are in the chord that's happening and i'm just listening to the recording not even playing it on my instrument not writing it down if i just know what it is because i can hear that's one six five six five one four three one seven then I can just hear that, that's transcription. And so when people say, oh, I never transcribed, I just learn how to play. Well, even just hearing, let's pick a melody. If you hear that and you know what those notes are in your head, that's what I consider to be transcription, just learning what the notes are coming from the speaker into your mind and knowing what the notes are. That's what it's about. It's not even about playing solos along with the um, recording. I mean, yeah, that's useful too. But again, even that is a somewhat unnecessary step. You know, I've learned solos, sometimes full solos without even, without using my instrument. And sometimes just for like fun or for the exercise of a practice of going through it, I'll, I'll learn a solo and then I'll just write it down without even using my instrument just to see if I could do it. And then I'll check myself by like playing along. But, you know, like that is anybody that, that has learned to play jazz on a high level has transcribed in that way where they have just learned notes and intervals from an actual recording. So again, I don't even think like you have to be playing along with full solos to count it as transcription. I could just hear like a two measure Michael Brecker line and just hear it in my head and be like, ooh, and then think about it and I can figure out what the notes are 
and then maybe check with a piano to know like what key it's in. And then I can hear it and figure and think through what the notes would be on my saxophone. And then I know how they fit the chord. Um, that's transcription right there. So there's another interesting story, um, which I will share after uh, another short break. All right, we are back and I have one other, uh, what I think is very interesting story that shines a light on this whole topic of transcription and the importance of it. Um, and that would be, um, well, there was this band, the Montreux Jazz Fest touring band, which is essentially an all-star group. And it had Ambrose Akinmusery on trumpet, Chris Potter on saxophone, um, Dee Dee Bridgewater on vocals, Christian McBride on bass, Lewis Nash on drums, and Benny Green on piano. And I got to hear this band in Indianapolis. And I still kick myself for this because I recorded, at least I thought I recorded the concert on my phone. But then I think I deleted the audio. Um, yeah, sad, sad, sad thing. But so the story goes, which was actually, I heard this in a interview that Chris Potter gave, or I think read, maybe read about this. I forget where exactly, but um, he was talking about that band and playing with Ambrose. If you're not familiar with Ambrose, he's one of the forefront modern jazz trumpet players. And he has a very unique original voice and style. And many, many young trumpet players are imitating him currently. <laughs> and um, he's like very, just very original. And when you listen to him, you don't really hear um it's well, at least it's hard to pick out specific influences. So Chris Potter said that when Ambrose wanted to, he could go into a full-on Clifford Brown impersonation that sounded just like Clifford. And if you've heard Clifford Brown and if you've heard Ambrose, they are great examples of polar opposite players. Clifford was like very inside, very like playing the changes, playing language of that time. And Ambrose doesn't play that stuff. He plays much more avant-garde and not always like really out there, but in a just very different style. You just have to listen to it to, to know. But basically the idea is Again, that's as just about as far of a leap as Coltrane was to Johnny Hodges. Um, and to imagine Ambrose learning Clifford Brown and getting really, really in-depth, you know, there may have been a time early on where he was even playing solos that sounded like Clifford Brown. Um, then to, to allow that to fuel his creativity and his growth into becoming this really unique original voice on his instrument to me that is what it's all about now if he never would have learned Clifford Brown and his style and his music um, 
could he have gotten to the point where he became this really high level, almost sort of like untouchable player where it's like even the imitators, they're not going to be able to do it as well as he can. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's obviously no way of knowing. You can't turn back the clock and, and not like <laughs> do an Ambrose take two that where he didn't transcribe and learn, essentially just learn things from the recording. Now it, it would be interesting to, to talk to him about this and try to understand, you know, exactly how he went about it, how he used that information that he learned and what other players maybe he learned from as well, but, and maybe even more specifically how he got out of sort of the trap of just playing just like Clifford, but what specific things did he do to actually, um, let that information inform his own voice that eventually took shape, you know, um, because I think, you know, I've heard other people say this is that at, at a certain point you have to decide not to play certain things. Right. And so it's like, okay, if there's like this one lick or pattern that you feel like you always fall into, it might be best for your overall artistic development to not allow yourself to play that. Because what it would do is in the moment, it would force you to find something else to play. If you're like, oh, here's that spot. I can just play that one thing. If you don't allow yourself to do that, I think what that does is it opens you up for the opportunity to grow in that moment and to search and find something. Even if what you find maybe isn't as strong of a musical statement, at least you played something new and that newness will develop into something that is strong. That to me is more of like what it's about. It's a lot of like, almost shedding of different skins to get down to the core of who you really are. And, you know, the more information that you take in when you're learning, what that does is it just informs and allows you to develop internally to the point where you have a a really um, nourished and interesting artistic voice to share. And I think that analogy of, you know, the music being a language and you got to learn the language is a good one. And especially in terms of, well, if you think of like an author trying to write a book, if an author only has a vocabulary of 200 words, it's going to be pretty challenging for them to write a really great book. Now they may be able to pull off one book, but after that, they're going to have used up everything. It's like, well, it's going to be challenging to really come up with new things. But if you have a very expansive vocabulary and you've practiced using it a lot and you've gone through the process of a lot of trial and error and editing and drafts, then you can get to the point where you can craft these original, really well-developed stories because you have this strong base of language and vocabulary. And I think it's similar in music. Now, where the analogy doesn't fit perfectly is that, you know, uh, in music, we can actually essentially make up new words. Now, what I mean by that is like maybe new combinations of notes. Now, some people will say everything's been done in that sense, but I would actually disagree. I mean, you know, if you think about... I don't know if you just 
sort of like ex expand your brain and say, okay, well, what if I have like 12, or let's make it simple. What if I have like um, 10 12 tone rows being played at once? Has that exact sound ever happened? Maybe not. And if I just start randomizing it, you know, I'm going to get to that point where these two chords have never been played together in the history of music. Now, of course, if we think about every single jazz recording, right, where every, if we take every single chord that even just a pianist is comped, this is sort of like a ridiculous thing to think, but like, yeah, of course we may come across that chord, but there, I think there is a point where it's like, okay, if we have 112 tone rows being played and the rhythms are slightly off, has that been heard? You know, and of course it might get just a little too dissonant to the point where, well, it's too dissonant to even recognize it as music, but that's sort of like another story. But the point is that, you know, when you're writing a book in the English language, you can't really make up words. Now, some people do, and, you know, there's a fine line between like that and gibberish, but it's like if you do it to the point where you're able to work it in and with context clues the reader can understand what you mean then then it can actually work i think the same thing occurs with language where you have a lot of liberties in terms of if you're playing over a chord progression and you can find things that are new and at least new to you to the point where you're expressing yourself as true as you possibly can in that moment and if you're always striving to do that then you won't just be an imitator, but you'll be able to move on to that level of innovation. And I think if you're always striving for that, then you're never gonna have to worry about just sounding like someone else. But sounding like someone else for a while in a period of growth, I think is an excellent strategy, just as we've learned from these stories about Coltrane and Ambrose, two of the greatest players of their time. Um, so as always, if you think of any questions that you want to ask and you think that you might like me to answer them on this podcast, then feel free to send me a message at saxphonejournal at gmail.com. And until next time, I wish you a wonderful month of April and many productive practice sessions. All right. Talk to you later.